TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. From GATT to the WTO, the secret side of free trade, and the founding of the International Forum on Globalization. How the rules of the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, were rewritten, and how, in 1995, the GATT became the WTO. The World Trade Organization enforces the rules of globalized trade and is the most powerful organization that hardly anybody heard of to this day. The WTO can override a member country's laws and regulations if they're deemed a barrier to trade. Against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine, the collapse of the climate, and today's extraordinary power of corporations, some business consultants, who ironically helped empower the WTO, are now warning that we're heading into an era of deglobalization with guaranteed disorder and scarcity. They say that global trade relations are coming apart, supply lines collapse, and the war in Ukraine affects the world. So it is time to visit again the rules of global trade. Expanded trade in the last 30 years has led to unprecedented environmental destruction. Even the promoters of the World Trade Organization, such as the U.S., suffered the consequences of the export of jobs and industries. All this reminds me that only 30 years ago I was present for the formation of the IFG, the International Forum on Globalization, they came up with an analysis and critique of the cultural, social, political, and environmental impacts of such an economic globalization project. Here's the rebroadcast of the first program in the radio series on the history of trade rules under GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, with voices of some of the founders of the IFG. This is TUC Radio San Francisco, The Secret Side of Free Trade, Part 1. The New World Order is scheduled to begin in 1995. The deregulated free market system, pioneered by the U.S. and the industrialized nations of the North, is scheduled to become anchored in international law. This law is the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, a huge trade agreement that binds 108 member countries and sets the rules for over 90% of world trade. If ratified by the members, the GATT will make free trade a legal and global requirement, no longer a matter of choice. Supporters of the new GATT say that free trade is the lubricant of the free market exchange of goods. Critics say that we already have greatly accelerated trade which may be the cause for the recession that we experience everywhere. The Secret Side of Free Trade, TUC Radio's 13-part series on GATT, will describe in detail the many changes that GATT intends to bring about. The rewritten rules will no longer just apply to trade in goods like cheese and electronics, but to every aspect of our personal and public life. We find new global standards on pesticides for food that will, for U.S. consumers, raise the level of DDT residue up to 5,000 percent. 
we find standards for health and labor safety and environmental protection and recycling laws singled out as barriers to trade and open to legal challenge. We find, for the first time in the history of trade, a new global high court of trade, the World Trade Organization of the GATT. Any member country to GATT may challenge before the WTO any other member country's laws if they are deemed to be barriers to trade. For example, if a country should decide to stop the logging of its forests and is accused before the WTO of putting up barriers to trade by that action, they might be forced to allow the cutting to continue. The rainforest that is home to the people living there and an integral part of the biosphere is just a market to the logging companies who demand free trade. The current GATT text is in serious conflict with the constitutions of many member countries and leaves them essentially powerless to protect their resources and shape their own future. The global ratification process of GATT, beginning after April 15th of 1994, is an opportunity to investigate the 500-page text of GATT and must bring into prominence the voices of those who had no part in defining it. In today's program, we go into the history of GATT. A very important fact about the GATT, and one that is never mentioned in the media, is that the new international trade rules were brought to us by initiative of the United States during the Reagan and Bush administrations. Herb Chow Gunther, executive director of the Public Media Center in San Francisco, says that the text of GATT is more important than any member country's constitution. Herb Chow Gunther. The question is fundamentally, what were the last 12 years about? What were Ronald Reagan and George Bush up to? What was the real agenda? The initial answer seemed clear enough to us that uh, what the last 12 years is all about uh, is uh, the wholesale devastation of America's public purposes, the literal bankruptcy of our government, and the biggest transfer of wealth ever in the history of the world, obviously as represented by Reagan's tax cuts. But as we asked this question, we also had a sense that that wasn't the full explanation. There was something else that was missing. And certainly, uh, as George Bush uh, completed his term, what was the real agenda of uh, Ronald Reagan and George Bush, at least for us, became clearer and clearer. The more we looked at it, it became apparent that the Reagan tax cuts were just the opening act. And we found out under Bush what the real agenda is, that essentially all this concentration of wealth is the first step in a process of recolonization that uh, it's essentially analogous to the mercantile period when a few European countries stretched out around the world and created uh, uh, some of the greatest empires. Uh, greatest empires not because they were good, but because they were absolutely powerful and they controlled everything top to bottom. And what we're here to talk about is nothing less than a fundamental rearrangement of the way the world is, a fundamental reconceptualization of, of how life on this planet will continue. That is what GATT and NAFTA represent. If you look at the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, in terms of the impact that GATT and NAFTA have, 
secret documents, secret uh, uh, treaties that are, as Ralph Nader said, negotiated in secret uh, without public debate, without us fully understanding what's in these documents. And you think of the consequences in terms of our lives, the lives of our children, and the fate of the world. These documents, NAFTA and GATT, in fact, are more significant than the Magna Carta, certainly more significant than the Declaration of Independence, uh, certainly more than our Constitution. NAFTA and GATT, as they're presently uh, uh, drafted, will undermine those documents. That's how significant it is. And, and that's the answer to the question, what the last 12 years is all about. Essentially, it's creating one huge 7-Eleven. Uh, the entire world as uh, uh, one market that has 160 standard products controlled by a few corporations that can sell around the world. Now, in the process of creating that, tremendous dis destruction will be done to diversity, cultures, differences, and the richness of life as we know it. And none of that has been made apparent. None of it has been adequately conveyed to um, uh, to people who are going to be affected by that. And we're hoping to do public education to create greater awareness of the impact and to create the empowerment that has to happen. That was Herb Choganser, Executive Director of the Public Media Center in San Francisco. Mark Ritchie has been credited by the Wall Street Journal as being one of the lead thinkers and analysts of these international trade agreements. He makes the little known connections between the IMF, the World Bank, and the GATT and explains how the Nixon and Reagan administrations used trade agreements to move power from Congress to the White House. Mark Ritchie is director of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Trade itself is, of course, an activity as old as humanity, and the key in some ways to the movement of ideas and people around the globe. I get up every morning and I need at least one cup of coffee, so I'm quite dependent on one of the fruits of world trade. But trade has also, since its inception, had a darker side. I always want to stress this, that you often get the impression from reading the editorial page of the newspaper or sitting in an econ class at some college that trade is this sort of universal good and it's the, uh, the uh, source of all well-being. But I want to talk a little bit about the dark side. Chattel slavery was one of the worst elements of humankind's history. The trade in weapons of mass destruction, the trade in drugs, the trade in toxics and in uh, dangerous waste products. There are inappropriate aspects of trade. The other element of trade that, of course, uh, I think we are more aware of today than ever before are the true ecological and social costs the ecological cost of transport, this constant expansion of our roads, our trucks, our airplanes, is a reminder that there is a full cost to this activity we call trade or importing and exporting um, that has not been figured in. And I think to look at the situation in Iraq and in the Middle East, we begin to look at what might be the true cost of maintaining the kind of petroleum supply that's necessary for the world trading system as we know it now. Um, we are not really thinking yet about the full cost of trade, and it's a concept that's now beginning to take on uh, more currency in the national political debate. But the trade negotiations and the trade agreements actually had their origins in an attempt to address perhaps the most dangerous and darkest side of trade, 
And that's the way that commercial rivalry between corporations in different countries have at many moments in humanity's history led to wars, and in this century particularly led to two world wars. President Wilson gave a famous speech in St. Louis after the First World War where he talked about how it was clear to any grade student that the First World War came about as a result of the commercial rivalries between Germany, France, and England and how the corporations and companies based in those countries competed for markets for raw materials, brought their governments into the conflicts, eventually touching off that terrible war. And the only way that countries had found to settle their conflicts was the, the uh, pursuit of war. In the midst of the Second World War, the world's most important leaders at that time the thinkers and the politicians like John Maynard Keynes began to talk about what can be done to regulate or to control these worldwide corporate or global company competitions that were leading us back to war. Keynes, along with others, proposed actually a new international economic system, often today called the Bretton Woods system, which included three institutions. Uh, the IMF, which is sort of famous today, but it was designed originally to make short-term loans to governments facing balance of payment problems. The World Bank, which was set up primarily to help rebuild Europe and the International Trade Organization, which was Keynes's global idea of a way to regulate those multinational corporations, as they were called at that time, or global corporations, as we call them today, a way to regulate them, to stop them from the kind of rivalries that created the conditions by which war came about. Keynes proposed some global antitrust regulations. He proposed mechanisms to prevent them from becoming monopolies. He proposed mechanisms by which they could be administered and regulated between countries since many of them were becoming larger than the nations they operated from. Unfortunately, the end result of that process was that the IMF and the World Bank were approved and set into motion, but the International Trade Organization was defeated by essentially the U.S. Senate. But they had negotiated kind of a side agreement called the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which was a minor agreement to begin reducing tariffs and addressed a few issues. But if you go back and look at the history, what you see is that the end result was the dropping out of the progressive aspects of this kind of international thinking, restrictions on the way corporations behaved and antitrust. And the only thing that survived were those parts of the agreement that the corporations really wanted. So the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, started out as sort of an accident. I want to go back a little bit to the evolution of how trade negotiations and trade treaties have come to take such a central role in our political life, because I think it can explain how the GATT has gone from a sort of benign attempt to try to get some regulation in the world market to the kind of threat to our Constitution, to our basic democratic institutions that Herb laid out in the beginning. You know, when this nation was colonized, it was colonized to be part of the global trading system. That's how a lot of people ended up here. And when the Constitution was written, the framers were paying very close attention to the question of international trade and international treaties. 
And they took a lot of care to state that the elected representatives of the people, the Congress, should in fact have control over trade policy, and that any treaties that this nation would enter with another country or with an international organization had to be done so with the strong support of the whole nation. If you remember in the Constitution, treaties require a two-thirds vote in the Senate and can be fully amended. So we took quite seriously the need for international treaties and rules, but we put some very strict controls over how those treaties would be entered. When Richard Nixon came to power, he saw this treaty process as a procedure which limited his power and his ability to maneuver in the political process. And Richard Nixon was a very smart politician, and he went to the Congress with a proposal about changing the rules under which treaties would be considered. He argued that this was too complicated. Two-thirds voted the Senate, they could amend it, it was too complicated in a modern world. And he suggested a new procedure for considering treaties, which was called Fast Track. And Fast Track took the original intention of the Constitution, which is that the Senate would require a two-thirds vote of Senate members with the full right to amend, and he turned it upside down. And upside down, he said, uh, the new rule would be this, that the President could negotiate trade agreements in secret, and that he would bring them back to the Congress who lost the right to amend it in any way and it only required a simple majority vote to pass it. So this is essentially turning upside down the original rules. People kind of went along with it because at that point in 1972-73, it was just about tariffs. It was about a fairly narrow range of the nation's economic policies and nobody really cared that much. But when Ronald Reagan came to power, and it became clear that there was a more or less permanent separation between the White House and the Congress, a lot of his advisors began looking at ways of moving power out of the Congress and to the White House to give him more control. And one of the brilliant discoveries they made was that if they could define a policy or a law as affecting trade, they could legitimately claim the right to negotiate that policy in international treaty negotiations, and they could bring it back to Congress under the fast-track rules that Nixon had negotiated, making it virtually impossible for Congress to say no. What happens is the President comes back with a gigantic single piece of legislation, and it's presented to the Congress, and they can say yes or no, but they can't make any changes. So maybe in a GATT, in implementing legislation, maybe there's 10,000 pages. A few politicians might read part of it, but basically they don't have time. So the end result of the fast track and the change was that it made it possible for the person in the White House to negotiate changes in our domestic laws, federal, state, and local, in a way that was almost impossible for Congress to turn down. Once these two things had happened, the fast-track procedure and the redefinition of what would be considered affecting trade, it became almost like kids in a candy store. The Reagan administration and the Bush administration who followed suddenly discovered this new tool. Number one, for trying to turn back the kind of progress we've made in this country on health, safety, worker rights issues, like Proposition 65 here in California. And number two, 
they saw this procedure as a way to lock in the Reagan revolution for the long term. The message was, we're going to use the trade negotiations process to change U.S. federal, state, and local law to overturn or turn back the progress that has been made and to lock in the deregulation, the concentration of power and authority that we've seen in the last 12 years. It didn't take long before the negotiations with Canada, the U.S.-Canada Free Trade Agreement, we began to see the fruits of Reagan and Nixon's work. Canada began challenging U.S. laws prohibiting the use of asbestos in the workplace. The United States challenged Canada's laws protecting consumers from pesticide residues. And as we've seen now in the last two years and three years, they've taken this combination of fast track and redefinition of trade to put our nations and the, the nations of the whole rest of the world's laws which protect their citizens on the auction block for change. We need international trade and we need international trade rules. We have to find some new way for the nations of the world and the peoples and the corporations that are out there to live on this fragile planet in some amount of harmony. And we're making some progress in terms of addressing the ozone problem and a few other things at a global level. But when you look at how they've hijacked things like GATT and how they're attempting to use trade negotiations like the NAFTA to turn back the progress that we've made, it's easy to see how the citizens of this world, in rebelling against that attempt to hijack and turn back what we've done, will come to see these international agreements as demons, as things that must be destroyed. We've reached a point in the GATT and NAFTA debate where we must find a way to stop this railroad train completely and then to open up a new kind of conversation among our neighbors, our friends, among our citizens about where do we want global trade, global cooperation, and the international economy to go. That was Mark Ritchie, director of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Chakravarti Raghavan, Indian scholar and journalist, has for years been an observer of the GATT negotiations in Geneva. His book, Recolonization, gives a fascinating piece of evidence that maybe one day will inspire serious research into the power groups within the U.S that initiated the fundamental rewriting and expansion of the international trade rules. The current round of GATT, commonly called the Uruguay Round, officially began in 1986 and concluded on December 15, 1993. As you heard, the Reagan and Bush administrations have not only lobbied heavily for the plan, but also allowed access to all major U.S. corporations as advisors to the text. However, there were as yet unnamed groups at work within the U.S. even before Reagan's first term in office. Reagan's first cabinet was assembled with a clear goal of rewriting the GATT. Raghavan writes, In 1981, in congressional confirmation hearings, key cabinet aides of Reagan, like U.S. Trade Representative William Brock, laid out their ideas and intentions about a new GATT round but few outside the U.S. paid any attention. By early 1982, the U.S. began pushing for a new round 
to free the movement of capital, banking, insurance, shipping, and information data systems. The GATT Secretariat was skeptical and cautious. There was also resistance inside and outside the GATT from the Europeans and other industrial nations. But at U.S. insistence, a GATT ministerial meeting was convened. Raghavan reports that in November of 1982, it was the U.S. that formally proposed a new round of GATT negotiations. The current deregulated free market model of GATT was initiated by the U.S. and promoted by the Reagan and Bush administrations, but preceded them and outlasted them. The appointees to Reagan's first kitchen cabinet brought completely worked out plans to the table, and the Democratic Clinton administration took over the agenda and is now attempting to force the ratification of GATT. At first, the U.S. was unable to get the other industrialized countries interested in such radical changes of GATT standards. Japan fell in line in 1983, followed by the European community. Third World members were pulled into the negotiations much against their will. From 1983 into the official opening and negotiations of the Uruguay Round, they found themselves misinformed, bribed, blackmailed, and ultimately, sadly, divided. If GATT is passed as proposed, third world countries have the most to lose. In the areas of manufacturing, mining, transport, wholesale and retail trade, banking and insurance, they will have to bring their national law in line with the trade treaty to assure full freedom of operation to the foreign corporations who want to relocate to their territory. Third world countries would even be obliged to protect the interests of transnational corporations and foreign nationals against their own people. The only role left for government would be maintaining law and order and keeping labor under control. The tragedy is that third world countries, burdened with debt, cheated by rising interest rates, controlled by the IMF and World Bank, frightened by the examples of trade blockades against Vietnam, Cuba, Nicaragua and Iraq, and in desperate need to make money to be able to pay their foreign debt, have little room to resist the GATT system. Vandana Shiva, director of the Research Foundation for Science, Technology and Natural Resources Policy, India. GATT basically makes uh, a triviality of all democratic institutions that have been created over centuries, through which societies have made decisions, through which diverse interest groups have resolved their conflicting interests. And it is a setting which creates the rule of monopoly powers. It pretends to do it by removing government intervention and allowing the market uh, to dictate policies. But what's forgotten is that when global corporations have annual budgets which go way beyond the annual budgets of entire third world countries, how those corporations will dictate the terms is in fact far more totalitarian and far worse in terms of democracy than any government dictatorship. Vandana Shiva, you will hear more from her and Martin Kaur in part two of this series. That was the first rebroadcast in a set of TUC radio archival programs produced in 1994. 
their soundings eerily timely as business consultants are warning that globalization might have been a failure. In the early 90s, the IFG began analyzing the new free market or neoliberal global trade models and the institutions and agreements enforcing this system. In response to the global trade model, the IFG began to stimulate new thinking, joint activity, and public education about this rapidly rising economic paradigm. And you will hear more voices and ideas from the TUC Radio archives in future programs. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Geleiden. Thank you for listening.